CityCast from Explicity. It was the day after his 10th birthday that Theo Giulio had told Yuri the story of his parents' marriage and the accident and how he had been summoned back from his job in Bombay by the priests who had found themselves literally holding the baby. The priest said they would take you. Yuri waited. It didn't feel right to take you from them, said Theo, because I didn't know how to deal with the baby. And it didn't feel right to leave you, because you were all that was left of my family. Yuri waited some more. I spoke to my confessor and he said, No one is ever ready for a child. Why do you think you should be? Yuri tried a smile, but it would not come. At the beginning of every year, Theo Giulio would read every single textbook from cover to cover in order to prepare himself for any difficulties his nephew might encounter. As a result, Yuri found himself rather better equipped than even his teachers, but he learned quickly to mask what he knew from them. They were easy to fool. It was the boys in the yard who could smell the difference on him. They knew he was a scholar, a pejorative word that divided those who stood first from the boys who could be friends. And he wasn't just a scholar, he was the weird Chokra. When they opened their lunch boxes, his carrot sticks and salads amused them. When he changed for yoga, they gawked at his langot. Theo Jolio had walked with Ram Manohar Loya to liberate Goa. He only wore khadi and bought only Khadi. So Khadi it was for Yuri. Mostly kurtas and churidars and sometimes an ill-fitting printed shirt while the other boys sported flying machine jeans and export reject t-shirts. It was the school uniform that saved him. Now, there wouldn't even be that to hide behind. He would be weird from a mile away, the odd one out. And so the night before his first day at college, Yuri had prayed for a friend. He did not know whether Theo Giulio would approve of the prayer. Once he had caught Yuri praying before a test and had said that while all things were in God's hands, the choice to be prepared for an exam in chemistry was entirely part of human free will. If you did not choose to study, don't expect to do well, Theo Giulio had said gently. I don't think God will involve himself. Did God involve himself in the making of friends? The way I read the book, the story is about the travails of a young Indian who must make the long and labyrinthine transition from boy to man. A difficult job when a large offset of one's opportunities in middle-class India is being beholden to family, with conservative family elders, and conversations in a minefield of verbal taboo. It is hard to hold down an adult conversation in India with elders, always an uncomfortable thing and incurably hard to avoid. To wit, when you are spoken to as a perennial child right into your adulthood, there is little scope for quiet and confident assertiveness and individualism. Personas must change to suit whatever pleases the current conversation, 
and all this while there is the business of growing up to contend with. Sometimes so difficult a job that many don't even fully make it to what might be considered becoming a man, at least by the stereotypical norms of the rest of the world. An ethic that is skillfully captured by my guest today, the author Jerry Pinto. You might say that Jerry understands the Indian middle class. His book, The Education of Yuri, is what in literature we call a Bildungsroman, which is a novel about the growing up years. It is the story of a feckless 15-year-old middle-class Indian teen who must make decisions about where his life is headed in the time of changing goalposts, moods, and largely predictable hormones. Jerry Pinto's narrative sucks you right into the story. The Education of Yuri captures the college ethic of the 70s, and it hits you with a litany of cultural references from the decade. Those who grew up around then would smile at references like Ground Control to Major Tom, James Hadley Chases, No Orchids for Miss Blandish, Bring Your Alibis from Hotel California. The 70s were also a time when the contrasting pressures of what someone wanted to do and what was good for them could be hard to handle. So Jerry places his protagonist in a situation where he is largely free of oppressive family pressures. And through Yuri's experiences, he allows us, the reader, a view of how society was structured and behaved. Yuri's decision to abandon his course in sciences in favor of the liberal arts was one daring example. And then Jerry captures the disposition of the 70s English-language major, and he empties out his literary arsenal in this book, and uses it artfully in his descriptions of Yuri's normal life of friendships, tawdry sexual escapades, romance, and inevitably, poetry. I have been a fan of Jerry Pinto's writing, his columns, and books for many years, and therefore it is my pleasure to present him on my show. Jerry Pinto, welcome to the Literary City. Thank you, Ranji. It's really nice to be here, and thank you for having me. And, you know, thank you for taking the time to read The Education of Yuri. I always feel that it's an honor that, you know, we don't, one of the only non-renewable resources we have is time. So when someone takes the time to read your book, they've actually given you a part of their life on lease and they're not getting it back. So thank you for reading it. And all you listeners out there, if you're planning to read it, I thank you in advance for the time that you will spend with me and my book. That is very charitable, Jerry, but that is nothing compared to the time that you spent writing it. So thanks back. Thank I've known your writing for many years. And uh, every time I've read you, I've sensed a certain perpetual curiosity of discovery. Are you perpetually curious? I uh, I would have thought that would be the stock and trade of a writer. No? You know, there is a diff. I was just thinking about this. Um, a friend of mine was telling me that he enjoys hiking. Uh, and I enjoy walking in the city. I don't, I'm not very fond of walking in green spaces on my own. And I think the reason why he likes uh, walking in solitude in the middle of like, you know, jungle landscapes, because he doesn't much like people. 
And the reason I like walking in a city is because I'm really interested in people. I'm really curious about everybody and everything. And sometimes just a thread or a line that someone says in passing will make you uh, want to stop and say, no, tell me the whole story behind that line. But the great thing about India is that um, we will share. We will share our stories. So I remember the first time I did a long distance train, I got on to, I was going to Banaras to do a story. I got onto the train and there was an old man sitting in front of me with a, a bandage on his leg. And I said, Chacha, kya hua? I said, what happened? And he said, Are, what can I tell you, son? You know, uh, I had an operation and it has not, the wound has not filled. Wait, I'll show you. And he unwrapped the bandage and then he pressed the wound and he showed me that it was still kind of like, you know, it was suppurating a little. And then we wrapped the bandage together and we started chatting. And by the end of that 36-hour journey to Banaras, I knew everything about it. This is the gift of India to any writer. Okay, that, uh, you know, you can take a cab ride in the city. Last time I took a cab ride with a friend uh, and uh, the, it was a short cab ride, I think, from uh, uh, Ballad Estate uh, to uh, Metro, which is about 10 minutes. We discovered that the man driving the taxi was a Brahmin, he told us. But his son had married a Parsi, he told us. The Parsi woman was non-vegetarian and so they now had two kitchens and all this, and as we were about to get down, he said, you know, I'm, it's so difficult right now because I've taken loans to cover the kitchen that I had to build. So if you could do something to help me. So I thought, my God, you found the time for the whole of the story and the pitch at the end. <laughs> I don't think we did anything, but I think we didn't take the change. You know what I mean? That was our offering towards <laughs> that kitchen. Do you still wonder why there are so many startups in India now? Exactly. Yeah. Everyone's got the elevator spiel down packed. <laughs> yes, and this is totally true. And it also validates my next question, which is, would I be wrong in my assessment that you build your protagonists by how they react to the others? Conversation or interaction in your novels is causal. Wrong? No, no, I think that's very... Um Opposite and very, uh, very informed reading, I think, uh, Ramji. It, uh, it's exactly right. I think, you know, when I start writing a conversation between two characters, often I know what I want, that I, or at least I have a plan. They need to be exchanging this information or they need to be talking about this. And then one or the other will, or both will surprise me by saying things that I didn't anticipate at all. And I'm thinking, oh, is that what you think about him? I, I hadn't planned that. Now, in in the discursive, in the literary novel, this works perfectly well. Mm -hmm. But when you're writing, right. say, a murder mystery, murder in Mahim, you know, uh, their information must be exchanged in measured homeopathic doses because you have to give <laughs> the reader enough information for them to say, "Oh, yeah, I should have seen that." But you don't have right. you can't give them so much information that they say, "Oh, I know who the killer is. I'm I'm putting this book down." So murder in Mahim was a real struggle to write. <laughs> And the others were, uh, the conversation was not. But what really does happen, I think, is also because I get obsessive about how people talk, actually, in real life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for every line of dialogue that I retain in a, in a book, I write about 30 lines of dialogue that, you know, it is just like people walk in, like, say, Bhavna and Yuri. Uh, Yuri will say something yeah. to Bhavna like, uh, God, it's so hot. And she'll say, yeah, yeah, it's always hot in this blasted city. 
he says, no, I mean, you live in air-conditioned life. You shouldn't complain. And then she says, and then, you know, you're looking at all of this and thinking, how do I need this? Do I need this? And you cut and you cut and you cut and you cut and you come down to what what you think. So, right. see, um, I completely agree with your uh, with your analysis that, you know, the, uh, the conversations are central, uh, they are causal, uh, and they are often uh, they often determine almost everything that else is everything else that is happening in the novel including the interior spaces of the characters because often they'll mm-hmm. be thinking one thing and speaking another because they just can't help it i think right when you're 15 16 at that age your tongue seems to have an independent existence of you you know, <laughs> you, you you tell yourself i will not say that to a teacher and you say it. Right. You find yourself saying sure. it already. And uh, you suffer the consequences of that, I think, also. And maybe that's how we learn how to edit ourselves in, in mid-speech. Mm-hmm. But yes, well, the conversations are very important. We'll be back after a quick break. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts, or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. Right. And as you build your characters, let me throw some adjectives at this. Warm-hearted, inclusive, balanced, non-judgmental. You seem to be accepting of human foibles. Your characters have a lovable air about them. Tell me about the warts and all part. You know, um, I think if you grew up as a Roman Catholic in this, you grew up as any kind of child in the middle class child in the city you've always given moral fables right to read these yeah. were oh, kind of uh, you know there was a club where mm. and there were all these really nice young men who behaved so well they were respectful right. of their parents they were nice animals they were good and you just thought i am so bored I'm losing my mind with boredom. Like, I mean, how good you are and how wonderful it is to be you. I mean, it must be the gentleman who carried his parents in a in 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 two baskets and took them around the country. Those are the things we grew up on. And without anyone actually saying it, those were the things you had to aspire to. You had to be like that. And uh, I think much of Indian fiction comes out of it result of reading those things like you just think people are not like this you know and uh, people are just just the way they are i think uh, right right and when people are the way they are in fiction or in anything that's when some, which is why i always maintain that if some i read the mahabharat earlier from which many of these stories are taken i would have fallen right. completely in love because there's not mm. a person in the mahabharat who doesn't have like a great offering of the self. So there's not a single character who is unidimensional, 
you know, it's just right, like right. Uh, they've got anger, they've got sorrow, they've got hidden wounds from the past. They are carrying things. They are trying to act as as morally and as in the moment as they can, but they are also held by something. They have uh, right, temptations. Right. They give in to those temptations. Mm-hmm. They suffer the mm-hmm. consequences of those temptations, and there seems to be a great knowingness also that they know that this will happen. That karma is yeah. immutable and it is coming for you. <laughs> What's not to love? And, androgyny, for one. <laughs> yeah. To speak a little more about your characters. Yeah. On page three eleven, you have this quote: "Nil humanum ame alienum." Nothing human is strange to me. <laughs> and that kind of sums up the way you deal with your characters. You let them in. Thank you. That's a lovely thing to say. I think, you know, it's something that you have to... This uh, line with Terentius, I think, in the third century is such a mm-hmm. big mm-hmm. line. Yes. It is so large yeah. uh, because it encompasses uh, everyone from Hitler to Mother Teresa. Right? Yes, it does. If, yeah. if nothing human is alien to me, then Hitler is not alien to me. There is probably right. some kind of Hitler sitting inside me that just mm-hmm. hasn't had the opportunity to get where he wants to go. And there's a Mother right. Teresa sitting inside me who's just not been allowed out into the open. Both of these are there. Both of these are possibilities. That is the, the power of this line and the challenge of this line also. And then from that challenge is, um, you have... You know, you're you're reading about some terrible atrocity that's happened in the paper. We're reading every day mm-hmm. practically right, about right. something that just makes you think, oh, oh, how could this even, how can human beings do this? And then you've got to say, nothing human is alien to me. And you have to build that again. You have to build that because it's just at reading about some eight-year-old girl who was raped or some boy who was beaten and to death because he touched a pot, whatever it is, some child who was bombed or uh, little babies uh, on the you know the edge of Europe with his face in the sand, it, dead, and you're thinking, who did this? Then you've got to say, we did this. This is mm. us all together. And this, I think, is right. the challenge of fiction. Uh, mm-hmm. For me, this first the first time this challenge happened was Lolita uh, with uh, by Nabokov. Because Nabokov, I yeah. was reading it and thinking... How could he? No, you can't think that way. Oh my God. Mm. But this is so conclusively, persuasively the way someone is thinking. And right. the second big challenge was crossword, uh, Clockwork Orange. Okay. Mm. Uh, the right. bigger, biggest challenge was the Mahabharata. Like because mm-hmm. you know one had also been told in this slightly uh, uh, you know uh, I don't know one was told one was just assumed that the Mahabharat was a religious text also right. and in right. one's experience religious texts did not have this kind of of uh, all inclusive powerful big uh, in you know sort of scoop up human right. experience <laughs> and and present it as it is without in too many excuses. Or explanations. Sure. You know, you yeah. brought you bring the excuses and the explanations to the table. The storyteller is not doing that. So I think all these challenges that I these are the ones I remember are the ones that made you uh, see that if you are going to produce uh, pallid, you know, people who uh, who just live their lives according to the book, not going to do much fiction. You're going to write moral fables for. <laughs> 
bored little children who are going to drop them halfway through and say, yeah, yeah, I read it. I love it. Thank you very much, auntie. <laughs> yes, they would. Yeah. I would like to talk about craft. In your first book, M and the Big Home, you had to go pretty deep in your narrative. So tell me a little about your your craft, your your method. To answer a very interesting question, thanks, Ramji. Is, uh, to start with, I think uh, uh, so far I've been very lucky in that I get up every morning with the desire to write. Cool. I don't have to. Yeah, I don't have to uh, force myself to go to the table and sit down and do it. I want to write. Uh, the bad part of that is that because I want to write, I write without without too much conscious effort. I just put it down. I put down whatever thoughts are coming. And sometimes there's a conscious part of my mind that says, Jerry, this is not an essay on um, the representations of the city in novels. It is about a novel itself. Will you please write that novel? And I'm saying another part of myself says, don't interfere. He's writing. Let him write. He will. He can edit. But just now, let him write. So uh, there's a goal I set myself every day, a certain number of words that I have to do. Otherwise, it's not a writer's day. So I, when I finish that goal, I'm done and I can relax. I can write more if I want to, but at least I've done my duty. Okay, that's one way of... of uh, a friend of mine said it's a very Roman Catholic kind of way. I said it's, <laughs> it's a working thing for me. It works for me. Uh, so the... Uh, the writing is never a problem and always a pleasure. So my uh, entire oeuvre so far has all been handwritten at one stage. Really? Oh, you mean, is that what you do? Okay. Every first draft, whether it's a translation, whether it's a poem, whether it's a narrative, whether it's a journalistic piece. Um, so the editing becomes central to the, uh, to, to the writing at that point. And that's the tough part because uh, first there's that old... Uh, Hemingway thing where you say kill your uh, kill your babies kill your darling kill your baby yeah right. kill your darlings like mm-hmm. look at the well-crafted line look at the elegant bomo look at the witticism sure see whether that you know actually is adding to the texture the flavor the feel the narrative the uh, the moment and if it isn't take it out move on you know? right uh, move right. it on move it on I think all those things and and at some point you've also got to decide. Um, is moving it on what you want to do or do you want to linger? Because you know? hmm. a lot of the greatest novels ever written are novels that linger over small incidental things and make and show you how these incidental small things can become really important. So both, I think, you know, you uh, it gets a little easier, little easier that editing thing, um, mm-hmm. but not much easier. Now, you write eloquently about the middle class. One of the things that I noticed in your novels was this undercurrent of uh, financial uneasiness. Thank you. I think that's very well noticed because also when I was reading, uh, when I used to be reading books, you know, uh, almost after, say, a Jane Austen kind of narrative where, you know, that's how much people had per year and who was a rich man, rich enough to marry and whatnot. That right, was, right. In Indian narratives, no one seemed to worry about money except in dire poverty. And that is so true. Uh, the middle class all seemed to get along without ever thinking about money. But I never saw this reflected in uh, in uh, the literary novels that I read. And I thought it was a very important part of life. 
And it is. Now, in the 70s of India that we knew, the middle income was the norm, right? And you have one of your protagonists in the education of Yuri living in uh, Kolaba. And for our listeners, that's a very upscale and expensive neighborhood of Mumbai. But she explains that she's in government housing. And that's a very Indian middle class observation on the street that one needs to explain. My point is, we had rich friends. We didn't know they were rich. I dare say we had a greater equitability in middle class society back then than we do now. As a social commentator, do you miss that? I think, you know, there is a, uh, for us, for our generation, Ramji, it was an education beyond our understanding even. Yeah. Because, you know, uh, when I was in school, I sat in the same class as uh, the jeweler Popley's son. And I sat in the same class as my Tamatarwala's son. And now I'd like to talk about our book at hand, The Education of Yuri, available everywhere. And as I mentioned in my monologue, you allowed your character to find his passage to, uh, to manhood, or at least find his way. That's not the case with most Indian men, is it? A journey through a maze with only mama's apron strings as a guide, as someone ought to have said. You know, I th- uh, one of the strangest things I think uh, that uh, that happens is that we are, as children in India, um, we get a huge amount of slack. Okay, like an Indian child is allowed pretty much anything that they want to do. Mainly boys. Oh, Indian boys more than anyone else. Yeah, they just love to like. I mean, and then there is the transition is when you go out into the world. And you do your first assignment, say, for a college professor who gives you a C minus because, you know, he thinks you can do better. You haven't put in the effort. And you think, no, I did that. I did that. So far, anything I did was met with joy. It was like, you know, if you sang a song, Besura also, it was like everyone said, Baba, ba, ba, how wonderful you <laughs> You danced, you danced out of time. People liked it. So you, I think... Almost everything to do with the outside world begins to become a, a learning experience. Parents like to be involved in it. So Indian parents are also part of the problem. Hasn't this adult parental oversight become worse? Oh, much worse. I mean, now uh, at uh, you know at uh, postgraduate level, they're still coming with their infants to be for the interview <laughs> and sitting with the infant outside. Infant. This is a twenty-one-year-old child who wants to get into media tomorrow which is like a battlefield, you can't possibly come with her and carry her, her you know, a bottle of water and some wipes <laughs> and, and a few uh, and say, no, uh, take this, drink this little energy drink before you go inside so you'll be better. <laughs> like, uh, give over, do ya, let the person have a life. Pampering can actually end up crippling you. And as I mentioned before, I think it's very interesting that you had your character, Yuri, be an orphan, so therefore free of uh, helicopter mom and so on, for instance. But it's, and you let him find himself, and through him, we get a sense of everything around him. Yeah. Not typical. I also read The Education of Yuri as a book about the English language. Oh. You threw a lot of your literary arsenal into this one, didn't you? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
I wanted to hint in a certain in a certain way, Ranji, that uh, that what we read is also part of our growing. Yes, that came through. And how we grow. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you spend your life reading Enid Blyton and, and other such tableau, <laughs> you end up that kind of tableau. But if luck by chance, as we say in Bombay, <laughs> you stumble onto the greater riches of, of literature and of international writing and of you know the post-colonial experience, you suddenly you are fundamentally changed. And while you are someone with considerable literary reference, you are as comfortable talking about the underbelly of Kafka as you are about the tawdry sexual escapades of a teenage boy. Right? When you are reading high literature, whoever you're reading, there's one world which is beautiful and perfect. And then there is the world in which you are moving, which is a series of challenges. Okay? It's just like when you're around 15, 16, First of all, the challenge that you haven't even thought about is the fact that your society has been organized in this way to ask, as you said, a ninth standard boy to decide his future, the rest of his life. How? What are you going to do with the rest of your life? Tell us now, make your decision and stick to that for the rest of your life. You're not even formed as a person. You're actually working on those tools. So I think, you know, the tawdriness of the experiences are almost worked into the into the fabric of our society because the fabric of our society is hypocritical right so it's not as if your father is going to sit you down at the age of 15 and say oh well you seem now to have achieved sexual maturity and i think it is time for me to take uh, find you someone who you can have sex with so Oh, the horror. This is the kind of fantasy life that young men would like to have. That, you know, you'd be taken to. I remember a young friend of mine coming back from his first visit to the cages and saying, Jerry, I couldn't do anything because they don't speak English, those women. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> That's hilarious. The thought was, if they did speak English, they wouldn't be in the cages. So true. <laughs> For this and many more reasons... The Education of Yuri is a delightful read. And for our listeners, there's a link in the podcast description to where you can buy a copy of The Education of Yuri, and through that, everything else that Jerry Pinto has written. And now for a few quick questions. As a writer, you don't posture. Many successful writers do posture. I, you know, uh, I think all postures you know, uh, come at a great psychic cost. How so? Okay. Because you've got to keep up the posture. You know, I remember uh, sitting in an audience where some author said, oh, I never read my reviews. And I thought, liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> you do read your reviews. They haven't been very good for the last book. That's why you don't write me. <laughs> uh, thank you for saying that I don't posture. That's a, a great compliment. Uh, I hope I don't. I think if you gather friends around you who are savage in their in their desire to <laughs> let you know when you're being pompous, you're safe. I guess actually. that excludes mummy and granny. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And now a final question. What part of the writing process do you like, during or after? Oh, uh, you know, uh, it's the, the moment of the idea born just inside some synapse inside the brain where it's moving about still, it's kind of half-formed, but it's nebulous and it is perfect. 
as soon as you start committing it to paper, its perfection is kind of like begins to erode because the words just can't contain all the senses that you had in there. Fascinating. Which, uh, in what direction are the Jerry Pinto neurons firing at this point? Uh, you know, uh, Jerry Pinto is kind of right now. I remember Amitav Ghosh telling me, you know, when M and the Big Home came out, he said, "Yeah, you'll have to give the next year to this book." And I thought, no, 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 I'm not giving a year to a book that's already done. I have other books to write. But when a book comes out, well, a lot of the time is spent, you know, actually thinking about the book and you know. and being interviewed and talking about it and going visit you know doing your doing the rounds on it well more part to everything that you're doing and this has been such an enjoyable conversation jerry pinto thank you for being my guest today on the literary city thank you ramji uh, for having me my pleasure entirely thanks ramji and that was the author jerry pinto discussing his book the education of yuri and i will be back with what's that word that wonderful segment where we look at words and phrases that we use all the time but never stop to think about in a minute or less and that depends in which country you're listening and i'm back it's what's that word you've met her before here she is my co-host hello my name is praniti but you can call me p that's p with an a not another e And hello to you, P with an A after the E. Did you enjoy Jerry Pinto? <laughs> oh yes, I did. You know, I had read M and the Big Home when it released. Yeah, did you did you like that book? Yeah, well, I enjoyed the writing and the prose was powerful, but that mental health part of the story sort of left me depressed. Right, I know such topics are hard to deal with. Yeah, I know. Mm, yeah. So say the interview gave me a new slant on the book The Education of Yuri. Hmm. Um I'm yet to catch up to reading it, but this interview makes me want to read it. Cool, that's good. Okay, good. So go ahead. Ask the question. Uh oh, okay, P with an A, what's that word? Feckless. <laughs> you used the phrase feckless youth in your monologue when referring to Jerry's main protagonist Yuri. <laughs> yes, I did. Feckless. Yeah, so I sort of know what it means. Mm-hmm. Um I think it means anyone who's uh, you know without capability or one who would likely not have any um feck. <laughs> yes, more or less. So do the whole thing, meaning etymology. Cool. Okay, right, first the meaning. You know, you wouldn't be wrong in using feckless to mean incapable like you did. but that works only in a very narrow context why narrow context how so well let, let me back up a little bit over here and say that the meaning you know you will find in standard dictionaries is weak or worthless irresponsible and importantly ineffective why did you say importantly ineffective that's answered by the etymology oh goody <laughs> so the feck in feckless is a contraction of ineffective ah wow that is cool right so etymologically feckless is effectless see right that makes sense cool so tell me the origins of the word the earliest appearance of the word can be traced to 1480 scots english where feck meant the bulk of so you know you might say 
the thick of the cotton stored in the warehouse, yada, yada. So you know what I'm saying? That mean the bulk of the cotton stored in the warehouse. But soon that word mm. thick also came to mean associated things like value, efficacy, or, you know, having an energy. So when something did not have feck over the years, it came to be called feckless. And by this turn of events, feckless, the word, also could be used now on humans and not merely goods. That's interesting. Yeah, but that was not until a hundred years after feck came to being. Now the OED, Oxford English Dictionary, credits feckless to 1586 Scots dialect. That's a hundred years after feck. Scots dialect for, you know, valueless or futile or feeble and, you know, later evolving to mean lacking vigor or lacking character and went on to even mean irresponsible. And then it was over 200 years afterwards in the mid-19th century, that's like in the 1850s or so, that Scottish essayist Thomas Carlyle popularized the word and then causing it to have, you know, appear in other written forms. Right. But of late, that word has fallen from public conversation and is used mainly in literature, you know, by writers. And it turns out, politicians. Really? Yeah. Give me an example. You know, a WikiLeaks leaked cable. Boy, that's that's a mouthful. A WikiLeaked cable. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A wiki <laughs> Yeah, I know. A, a WikiLeaks leaked cable from a U.S. diplomat referred to then-Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi as feckless, vain, and ineffective. <laughs> That's some diplomat. <laughs> well, he didn't say to Berlusconi's face. <laughs> wow, such restraint. You know, unknown to non-diplomats, I suppose. <laughs> I guess so. Say, does feck have anything to do with the other rude four-letter F-word. <laughs> the other rude four-letter F-word. <laughs> I thought you'd ask. <laughs> you'd think, but no, I checked. Nothing to do with it. Oh, damn, I'm disappointed. Don't be. There's a lot of rude, vulgar usage surrounding feckless. Yeedish. <laughs> uh, you know the comedian Samantha B. Yeah, of course. I fangirl Samantha B. Okay. Samantha B, once called Ivanka Trump, a feckless four-letter word beginning with C. <laughs> oh, no. That's rude. What happened? Well, Samantha B had to apologize, but there's a funny twist to the apology too. Oh, what? Much of the social media reaction to her apology was puzzlement over what was so wrong that she had to apologize for using the word feckless. <laughs> That's hilarious. It is. Well, I'll leave you with another curiosity about the word feckless. In the 1560s, the opposite of feckless was feckful. But no one has used feckful for centuries to mean full of feck. Yeah, I'm actually glad. You know, I'd hate to refer to Roger Federer as a feckful tennis player. <laughs> Right, I get that. Well, such compliments would give one pause. <laughs> but it will give me leave. Leave? To do what? To leave. <laughs> so with feck, I depart. Bye.
And that's our show. I'd like to thank my guest, Jerry Pinto, and my co-host, Pranathy P with an A, Madhav, and you for listening. Listen, have a great week and see you again next Wednesday. 